You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another edition, another episode of the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of July 2022, five minutes past four. Uh, with your usual Wednesday afternoon drive time show presenters, myself Shajil Ahmed and also Dr. Tariq Bajwa here as well with us uh, in the studio. Assalamu alaikum, Bajwa. How, how are you doing this Wa afternoon? Salam, peace be on you and all our listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very well. I, let, mm. I, th- I think it's a very fluctuating weather. We, we got uh, a change in the temperature, mm. which was uh, welcoming after the. 40 degrees. <laughs> yes. It's, it's cooled down uh, now. It's cooled it down has now. cooled down, but they think that uh, it's coming again. It's coming again, so yeah. One should I mean, be prepared. Uh, as the, you know, as part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as uh, as the, the annual convention, the Jalsa Salana, yeah. um, the annual convention is looming as well. In fact, uh, next weekend will be the annual convention. Um, yeah, it's the 5th, 6th and 7th. 5th, 6th and 7th of yeah. August. Yeah, and obviously the temperature is very important. The temperature is very. Yeah. I was just going to say <laughs> that, that. Hopefully yeah. it doesn't rain. Hopefully yeah, we don't want rain. rain, but we don't want it too hot either. Yeah, we don't want forty degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, um, I mean, better. I mean, you, anything you is, better is quite than rain. good actually. Um, yeah, the, the, there is arrangement for the uh, hot weather as well within the marquee yeah. is fine yeah. and. Uh, um, there is a little advantage, a little bit of advantage. Uh, if the, it is, it rains. Everybody is inside the market. <laughs> that, that, that's one thing. That's that's one so. thing. Everybody is inside the market. Everybody <laughs> listening to the proceedings, and everyone's benefiting from that one as well. Uh, but you know, when 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 it's not raining and uh, you know it's nice outside, then everybody can enjoy the the atmosphere yeah, uh, as well people still um, yeah they, they do tend to listen to all the speeches which are very very interesting mm. but um, you know there is an exhibition held at the annual conference yes, which yes. is uh, regarding the um the, for the uh, uh, shroud yeah uh, of tr- Turin, of Turin yeah. uh, and, and that is one of the features of Jalsaslana, which is related to our today's topic, uh, exactly. uh, of course, exactly. uh, which is uh, archaeology, yeah. and uh, this is one of the archaeolog- archaeological features which uh, is exhibited there, and a lot of information regarding, uh, and it is not only that it is... Um, um, of historical interest, mm. but it has a very big impact on on religion itself, uh, and and uh, um, you know both Christianity as well as uh, Islam, uh, because they are related to um, to the life and death of uh, Prophet Jesus mm. of Nazareth. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, obviously there is uh, and the proof of his being alive after he was crucified mm. uh, and that that makes a huge change in the thinking um, and the uh, in fact the whole building on which the the, the 
current day present day christianity is based the concept of trinity um it falls down if if it is proven uh, as per you know the studies uh, the archaeological studies on the on this shroud and that um, he was alive when he was uh, you know wrapped in this uh, i mean it's, it's a matter of discussion people do discuss and uh, about the um being it being genuine or not but mm. uh, obviously there there are scientific studies um so, but but it does um tell us the importance of the archaeology as such as a study because it ma- it can make a huge difference to people definitely definitely i mean like you like you mentioned a lot of uh, people are influenced by this a lot of people are interested in this as well and when it comes to uh, when it comes to belief in terms of religion uh, and what people will you know choose to believe or choose to not believe archaeology because it's you know it's historical evidence you know which proves a certain matter a certain point that can definitely shape and form um different concept different tenets different uh, core beliefs and doctrines about different religions as well just like you mentioned christianity one of the heavy heavy doctrines is is of trinity but if this is uh, this is proven and uh, you know a lot of people believe in this one as well that this the turin shroud was actually you know um you know the ointment which was put on to jesus christ of nazareth peace mm-hmm. be upon him um, sort of proves that he did not die on the cross he was taken down he was alive and he lived afterwards as well so all of these things are very very much important that's something that uh, quite right in, in a way it is related yeah. to judaism as well because it is mentioned that they claimed that they exactly. were successful exactly. in in in, in making him die him. on the yeah. cross yeah and that that was their claim and according to the old testament anybody who dies on, on the, the on, on on the cross um they uh, according to um, the old testament that were the, he dies a cursed death and mm. that that's what they wanted to prove that's what they wanted to prove uh, but the holy yeah. quran says that they were not successful were not in successful. doing that yeah and but obviously you know the holy quran says that they did not kill him they did not uh, slay him on the cross but it was made as if you know it was confusing for them as well and they did not they, they weren't they were not able to to kill him absolutely but allah the almighty raised him to to himself uh not mentioning the sky not mentioning earth not mentioning any physical place yeah. but just mentioning that he raised him towards himself so that's proved that he was a spiritual ascension not not a physical ascension as well but all of these things you know they as as you mentioned they, these things these archaeological artifacts these uh, they 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 shape what you know what you believe in just like we we have just mentioned now that we we can talk about christianity from this we can talk about judaism from this and one of their core beliefs can actually be 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 changed or proven um one way or another because of these archaeological findings and then not just judaism and christianity but also islam a lot of muslims believe that jesus christ jesus of nazareth who was the son of uh, of mary peace be upon her that he allah the almighty raised him to to the sky physically so a similar belief what christians have as well but you know if this is proven true which you know a lot of people actually do believe in that one turin shah speaking about then you know the what the ahmadiyya some community believes in what we believe in what the promised messiah upon whom be peace has actually written in his in his books in his writings especially in jesus in india has written extensively about this one So all of these things are very very much important and uh, especially for people who are of religion people who follow religion 
um, they they can actually understand how important this one is. So that is something that we're speaking about today. Today we will be looking at how archaeology archaeology has shaped our understanding of the you know of the of the entire world, our whole understanding of uh, of of history. It is certainly a you know as we as we're discussing a fascinating field of study. Um, you know, over over the millennia, the Earth has buried many secrets that we're still uncovering, and you know, we we may think that we know a lot. We may have discovered so many different dinosaurs or plants or different animals which were living, um, you know, in the you know in the millennia over the millennia, but we're still discovering new new things as well. Even just recently, they found twenty or thirty new species underneath the sea as well. So you know, we, and you know the 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 pictures of the universe. I'm sure you must have seen that, um, the NASA where they have taken pictures of the universe. How yeah. how it's amazing, you know. Oh, but obviously that's in space. But specifically speaking about the about Earth, so it's very interesting. So archaeology is in fact it's the scientific study of human activity through mm. the recovery and analysis of material culture. The archaeological record consists of artifacts, arch- architecture biofacts or ecofacts, sites and cultural landscapes. So it's the study through, so basically it's the history, Hmm. but it's the study of history through the excavation of, uh, you know, different sort of materials, uh, monuments. And uh, so we we do study history through Hmm. archaeology. So archaeology is one of the means through which one can reach the previous history, uh, the, uh, which is related particularly to the human beings, mm. and we can study what happened in the past, and then uh, uh, you know we make inference out of that. And okay. it's quite scientific. Yeah. Um, in scientific terms, it has given a, a lot of value, mm. and uh, um, so so a lot of uh, importance is given to all the. Or you know, or the artifacts which you know one yeah. gets and is, is considered as a great, as a great treasure. treasure. Exactly, if, if one exactly. finds that, and uh, uh, someone is very very happy, and, mm. and and it is very very important because you know some of the I remember that even um, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he has mentioned about uh, a letter which was found in a cave. Uh, uh, when they were doing, you know, some archaeological studies, and they mm. found this, which was written in Hebrew, in, in old, uh, probably Hebrew or some other language, I think. But they mm. had um, some, so they they got a, a scholar who could translate that, mm. and um, and and that had mentioned about uh, uh, Prophet Jesus, on whom be peace, being alive after. Mm. The After crucifixion, the crucifixion yeah. and also that uh, his his uh, um, uh, um, you know um, guidance or his his followers mm. believed in unity of God as well. So mm. he has mentioned in one of his books. He's written. He's given the impression of that letter as well. Mm. That's very very interesting. And you know, mm. as we mentioned, that it, these foundings can actually shape and form our understanding of uh, of religion as well so all of these people all of these things are very very much important especially for the people of uh, of religion um let's speak to let's speak to our first guest professor uh, stephanie Mulder, who is an associate professor of islamic art and uh, architecture at the university of texas at austin 
Um, uh, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for, for joining us this afternoon. As an archaeologist of, uh, of Islamic history, do you think that Islamic history has taught uh, and learned with an, with an open mind? You know, I just, I don't think it's taught. I don't think it's taught enough, and I don't mm. think it's taught as comprehensively as it deserves to be. I mean, Islam is, you know, of course, the world's second largest, fastest-growing religion, and yet mm. I would say the average non-Muslim knows less about it than, I don't know, name any other prior, <laughs> you know, mm. historical moment, you know, the long-gone Roman Empire or, or um, you know, medieval Europe, you name it. Um, so, and, so I think it's just really not... Um, taught to the degree of kind of the influence that it had on, on the history of the world, it, it, it hasn't really gotten its due in, in a typical education. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, you've worked a lot in the, in the, in, in the Middle East, inclus- you know, including places like, uh, like Syria. Um, however, since the civil war has caused so much um, you know, sort of damage and chaos and destruction, what impact do you think this has had on the on the history of the religion? So, it's absolutely heartbreaking, of course, what has happened in Syria. Um, it's it's mainly heartbreaking because you know so many people have suffered so much. Um, but you know, people people live in places and they're connected to places. They're connected to you know um, you know locations and localities and and you know physical spaces that have. There are carriers of your identity. There are carriers of meaning for you. Um, so the loss of those places is also, you know, a kind of second trauma. Um, so it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but you know, not all is lost. There are and have been all throughout the conflict local initiatives whereby people have stepped in to preserve and care for, um, you know, archaeological sites and other types of, you know, you know. Um, Places of material heritage, and a lot of those have already begun to be rebuilt, and people are, you know, are maintaining them and caring for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, history is never lost. This is another kind of page in the history of this region, and um, and I think we'll we'll have to keep adding to it. Interesting, interesting. Um, now, you've conducted research on the mausoleum of uh, of Imam Shafi. Can you walk us through your experience and uh, and some of the foundings that you that you that you came across? Sure. This was my this was the first article that I ever published. I got interested in it as a graduate student because it struck me that it was one of the largest and most prominent um, buildings, um, hmm. you know, Islamic buildings. It's the largest dome, in fact, after the Dome of the Rock. Um, and yet had never had an article written about it. So I started thinking about it and writing about it while I was a graduate student. And as I got into it, it turned out to have a really fascinating history. Of course, this is the, uh, the Imam Shafi'i, who is one of the you know, founders of the four Sunni legal schools. Um, and, mm. uh, and this was built in a southern cemetery in Cairo um, in 1211 by one of the Ayyubid sultans initially, it was built by uh, the famous generals and, um, and rulers Saladin, um, and then elaborated in 1211 by his, uh, the nephew of Saladin, so Sultan Al-Kamil, Malik Al-Kamil, hmm. um, and recently really beautifully renovated by uh, by May Al-Ibrashi and her Akalina 
uh, initiative in Cairo, which is a really great example of that kind of local, community-oriented, um, you know, community-centered heritage preservation project. So huge shout-out to them for a spectacular renovation of that building in, the, in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so the article that I wrote about it uh, back in 2006 now, it's been quite some time ago, um, was able to think about this building in the context of its creation. It's often been argued to be a kind of semi-triumphalist monument because, you know, obviously it's at the grave of one of the great scholars of of the foundational era of, of Sunni legal theory. Um, and certainly it is an extremely important Sunni monument, but I also noticed in Cairo that really everybody visits, visits this site, and Imam Shafi's grave is a kind of a, it's like, he's almost like the patron saint of Cairo. People come there, and they make entreaties at his grave, and they write little notes to him and stick, him, stick them inside the um, inside of his little, um, you know, grave enclosure, and they pray there, and um, people from all walks of life do this. So I was curious about what the history of that might have been, and um, and in writing this article, I was able to show that even though it was built by you know Saladin in the aftermath of the Shia Fatimid dynasty, and has often been seen as this triumphalist kind of statement of, of Sunnism, mm. it actually incorporated a lot of decorative elements from the previous Fatimid dynasties. So it enabled me to think a little bit about how. You know, art and architecture don't always necessarily carry these kind of strictly sectarian meanings and um, and how buildings can really actually ser- serve multiple groups and multiple populations and how often I think our present conceptions of relationships between different groups are often not necessarily in keeping with how, how those groups were ordered and organized and related to each other in the past. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that, that experience as well. Um, a lot of your a lot of your research fo- also focuses on ceramics, uh, but to to the untrained eye, there's uh, you know there might not be that much uh, to it. But h- how would you say otherwise? <laughs> Great question. Mm-hmm. I always say ceramics are the archaeologist's best friend. They're they they're you know really the bedrock of archaeology. So. Right. I, and sometimes I joke that they're the plastic of pre-modern civilizations because they're abundant, they never decay. Thankfully, they're less damaging to the environment, but they're just kind of omnipresent. They're really important because they carry crucial information about past societies with every relating to everything from, you know, trade networks, aesthetic preferences, food ways, what did people eat, how did they eat it. Um, you know, cultural ways of interacting with people can be discerned actually from from the study of ceramics. For archaeologists, they're also essential for for dating because ceramics change over time. And if you have typologies that tell you, you know, in the 12th century, you know, a handle or a rim or a base looks like this, mm. when you excavate that level, because ceramics are so abundant in, in you know in every stratum of a of an archaeological site. Um, you can say with with relative certainty that that's you know a 12th, 13th century level, et cetera. So they really, without ceramics, there really would be no you know um, archaeology. Of course, this applies to historical periods after ceramics were being made. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so they're they're really rich and really um, weave important stories, tell really rich, rich tales. So sort of you know they go hand in hand, sort of just like you described as well. Um, you must have you must have come across some new some new artifacts 
as well. Can you just, for, for our listeners, it must be quite interesting, sort of um, that moment, you know, when, when you find a new artifact and you hold it for the first time and you discover it, sort of. H- how is that feeling? It must be great, isn't it? It's extraordinary. I have to say, like, it's it's the very, very best thing about being an archaeologist is when you, it's a hard job, as you can imagine. It's dusty, it's dirty, you're sitting out there and, you know, sometimes some dry place or some really muddy place or some, you know, you're in the dirt. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you will brush with your brush and there will be this thing that has been sitting in the earth for, you know, 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. And you're the first person to have held it in all that time, mm. and it was left there by some other person. You know, it feels like this direct, it's like time travel, it's like you're there. So that moment is really extraordinary, and it's extraordinary also because it's a little bit rare, because 90% of the time it's sort of drudgery, you know, it's a hard job, and then suddenly there's these extraordinary flashes of, of beauty and this sense that you're touching the past. Mm. We had on my site in northern Syria, the site is called Balis, B-A-L-I-S, and it was a medieval Islamic city. Um, there was a kind of waste uh, kind of dump that we excavated. And I have to say the trash is always the best to excavate. <laughs> and as we were digging through this, um, it had been filled, just sort of filled, backfill into a tower to kind of, kind of shore it up. And, it, and we just went through layer and layer of trash. We pulled out a child's tafia, um, a child's um, kind of head scarf, basically. And then also a beautiful little galabia, which is like, you know, a long um, kind of uh, tunic. Hmm. And it was striped, and it was from the 13th century, and it was untouched. Mm -hmm. And kind of this idea that you were like holding in your hands, like the wardrobe of a child from, you know, 800 years ago was just really moving. That's really, you know, Mm -hmm. that that is quite something, you know, coming across that. Uh, just like you mentioned and you described as well, very, very, very much uh, interesting as well. Um, thank you so much, Professor Stephanie, for joining us this afternoon and speaking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you. My pleasure. Well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. That was Professor Stephanie Mulder, who's an Associate Professor of Islamic Art and uh, Architecture in the University of Texas. Uh, and Austin, is, she is a specialist in Islamic art, architectural history and archaeology. Very, very interesting uh, uh, speaking to her as well. Um, so, you know, it, it, that I mean, that that moment, isn't it? Um, it's, it must be quite a, you know, quite a, quite a moment, quite a joyful moment, you know, holding that for the first. Just like she mentioned, it's like going back in history, isn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. The way she and, described um, it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting as well because you know in the in the Holy Quran um, it discusses uh, archaeology as well. Um, in fact, it, it discusses it in a very prophetical um, uh, manner. In chapter eighty-two, verse five of the Holy Quran, and this chapter, you know, there's a lot of different prophecies which are mentioned in this one, um, and one of them is that and when the graves will be laid open. Now this recognizes um, that the world will come to a time where we will look at to we'll, we'll have to look at the dead for answers about our past. And just like this, when you're digging, not not I'm not saying digging the grave, but digging you know just dirt, digging, going down, going down, and you come across something. This is what in essence this verse is talking about. And indeed, archaeological excavations have taken place in tombs, um, you know, in grave sites all over the world giving us a fascinating insight into 
humanity's past. Now, man's understanding, as we have you know been discussing as well, we've been saying as well, that is is very much limited. However, with God Almighty's help and guidance, we continue to explore and discover more and more about the mysteries of, of nature and, of course, the universe as well. Um, now, there's a very, very beautiful, um, uh, you know, verses in the Holy Quran which speak about, uh, which talk about all, you know, Allah's creation and the intricacies of this universe as well. Allah the Almighty mentions in chapter 67, verses 2 to 5, Blessed is he in whose hand is the kingdom, and he has power over all things, who has created death and life that he might try you. Which of you is best in deeds? And he is the mighty, the most forgiving, who has created seven heavens in harmony. No incongruity canst thou see in the creation of the gracious God. Then look again. Seest thou any flaw? Ay, look again and yet again. Thy sight will only turn to the confused and fatigued, having seen no incongruity. We can see that, you know, if you look at the universe, whether it's life on earth, whether it's the universe out there in, you know, in, in space, all of this is living, you know, all of this is in harmony. Allah the Almighty has created it and everything is living in harmony. There's no sort of, uh, even if the world, if, our, if earth was a few centimeters here or there, it would have been a different, uh, you know, it would have been inhabitable. You would not be able to live on Earth as well. But it's it's such a it's it's made in such a perfect manner that there's no sort of con- conflict between this uh, and that as well. And this is the beauty of the creation of God Almighty. And yet, still, people say that this is all by chance. That is a thing which mm. you know, <laughs> which is yeah. Obviously, <laughs> I mean, when you studied more and more, you you try to, you try to understand, and that's the purpose of history as well. That you. Um, try to understand how, particularly about the humanity. Mm. You know how how did it start? What was the beginning? And whilst Christianity would contest that Adam was the first human, yeah. Islam has a different take on the on this matter. And the Holy Quran also clarifies that Adam is not unique in being created from dust, as all mankind, including Jesus, uh, on whom be peace, were created in a similar way. Contrary yeah. to the Bible, which mentions Adam as having been exclusively created from dust, so it is is something common with the human being that they were all created from dust, and Adam was one of the human beings, uh, and then obviously there is an Adam who was the first man, yeah. who was a human being, and then there was uh, Adam who was a prophet of God. And the prophet of God, um, the first prophet of God who was uh, appointed, obviously was for, for to guide people. So the, if, the, if the people were, did not exist beforehand, who was he to guide yeah. at that time? So yeah. obviously, so this, this uh, prophet Adam was different from the first uh, human being. So the Holy Quran of course, says of that surely the case of Jesus with Allah mm-hmm. is like the case of Adam. He created him out of dust, and then he said to him, Be, and he was. This is from chapter Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 60. Similarly, about the creation of the whole of mankind, the Holy Quran says, And of his sciences that he created you from dust, then behold, you are men spreading over the earth. That's from chapter Ar-Rum, that's chapter 30, verse 21. 
Furthermore, regarding this matter, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan, on whom be peace, he said that we believe in the existence of human race before Adam. And in an English scholar of astronomy, Professor Rigg, he met the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, on the 12th of May and 18th of May, 1908, mm. um, in Lahore. Uh, when the uh, the promised Messiah on whom BPC, he, he was uh, there, he was visiting Lahore, he had come from Qadian. And while he was staying there, this Professor Reg, he met him and he asked him a few questions. Uh, and it is reported in Malfuzat, Volume 10. Malfuzat is the um, collection of the sayings, the sayings or whatever sittings, was said by yeah. the promised Messiah. Um, in the form of, uh, you know, ten, it has been collected in, in 10 volumes. So among other questions he asked, it is written in the Bible that Adam, or say the first man, was born in Jihun, hmm. Sihun, and belonged to that country. Uh, are then all the mankind that is found in different parts of the world, like America and Australia, the descendants of the same Adam? Hmm. So this was his question. Yeah. And to this question, the promised Messiah on whom be peace, uh, he replied, we do not follow the Bible in holding that the world began with the birth of Adam six or seven thousand years ago, and that before this there was nothing, and mm. God was as it were uh, idle, uh, and God was as, as if he was idle and without work. Mm. Neither do we claim that all mankind who are now found in different parts of the earth are the progeny of the same Adam. So, uh, on the contrary, we hold that this Adam was not the first man. Yeah. Mankind existed even before him, as is hinted by the, um, uh, you know, by the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran uh, uh, yeah. when it says to Adam, I am about to place a Khalifa in the, yeah. in the earth. So, as Khalifa means successor, it is clear that man existed even before Adam. Hence, we cannot say whether the original inhabitants of America, Australia, etc., are the progeny of this last Adam or some other Adam gone before him. Right, right. And, you know, an another thing is that the, the knowledge of the year of birth of Adam was also revealed by, by God Almighty to the promised Messiah upon whom be peace through, through a vision as well. And that's quite interesting. Now, According to which uh, Adam was born 4,598 solar years before the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was commissioned by God Almighty. In other words, the year of uh, of his manifestation or, or, you know, the start of the Quranic revelation as well. So that's 4,598 years before uh, before this time as well. Now, the most notable or the most noble event uh, took place on August the 20th, uh, 610 coinciding with the 24th of Ramadan of the uh, that's the first year of the call um, and uh, you know that's uh, the that's first a, year of the call the, that, that's when he when got he, the revelation and he was appointed as a prophet exactly. of God and that's when he was 40, 40 years old as well living in yeah. Mecca yeah. so you can just you know you can just have uh, an estimation of you know of how that time how many years or how many thousands of years uh, that was and now the promised Messiah upon whom be peace has said that the the this, uh, the the last millennium or the seventh one, uh, we we are in that one. Um, so you know it's uh, or you know at the end of the sixth and uh, the sixth one as well. Um, so this was uh, what uh, what we were talking about before that uh, all of these different things they have 
we can understand different things and different beliefs of different religions can actually be understood or interpreted in a, in, in different ways as well. Now, talking about the preservation and destruction um, of uh, of this as well, that over the centuries, during during religious wars, many Islamic landmarks have actually been destroyed. Um, often when one group defeats another, it tries to remove any lasting legacy of the, of the previous group. For example, when in, in 1492, the Christians took Spain from the Muslims, uh, especially southern southern Spain, m- many mosques were actually converted into churches, including the famous mosque of Cordoba. Now it's interesting that you know it's the 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 direction of that is towards the Qibla, is towards uh, is towards Mecca, and a lot of different mosques. Well, I mean, you can say that they are churches now because they're converting into, into churches. But if yeah. you look at the way that they are made. You can see that you know it is the it is yeah, there you can and clearly the, make the, it the out dome that is there. It is a mosque. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the, the the direction all of them are facing towards the the qibla towards Mecca as well. But you know it's it's made into it's made yeah, into churches. Interestingly, um, you know this I've I've seen this uh, mosque in, in Toledo. Toledo, in, in yes. Toledo, and what happened was that Hazrat uh, the the third caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmad. Uh, at his time, you know, when this was discovered that um, they found out that this is a mosque mm. and that was also during their archaeological uh, findings. You know, uh, uh, yeah, they, yeah, they were uh, looking and they found out that this is a mosque. Mm. And um, he, because he was very interested and he, he actually offered that we can actually, um, we can look after this mosque and mm. we'll me- keep it as a mosque because it is a mosque. Mm. And if you give it us to us, you know, either on lease or even we were ready to buy that, to purchase that, uh, yeah. to purchase that. But um, um, you know, at that time it, it was refused. Mm. And, and later on, uh, um, he was the one who actually founded the very first mosque after um, about eight hundred. About, uh, about a very long years. Uh, yeah, yeah hundreds of eight hundred years, I think. Um, uh, so first mosque was built, and that is also near Cordoba in uh, in Pedrobad. Pedrobad, yeah. Uh, uh, it's called uh, uh, Mezquita Basharat. Yeah, that uh, Basharat. mosque yeah, was yeah. was made, and and so we have got uh, a purpose-built mosque there. But this one, you know, still, and now mm. they they have realized and they have maintained it, mm. and they have opened it for the tourists. For the tourists, they as, can, as an attraction, go and uh, see that this this mosque, interesting mosque. So uh, the the thing is, and and another thing which came to my mind was was that the instructions which were given by the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, during the wars, uh, one of the instructions was that if you see something which is historical of something of significance, don't destroy it. Hmm. You know, if it, it could be an it, it could be significant for another religion, it could be significant for another. So don't d- destroy it. Keep you know don't mm. uh, you know because it is something it's something sacred. It could be sacred something for them, holy, yeah. something exactly. Exactly. Uh, of historical importance. Um, the only thing which he he um, forbade was to to start worshiping the idols or of the, you know. Of the, but otherwise, he did not. Uh, you know, he, he it, it was a clear instruction that do, don't destroy something don't destroy of, uh, of significance to mm. some other religion even. Absolutely. So you know, this is uh, uh, you know a key principle that we we should all uphold as well. It doesn't matter that it might not be significant for you, but it may be significant for for others as well. It may be sacred for them as well, and it will be good for them to actually look at and you know visit these places also. And um, let's let's speak to our next guest who is on the line with us, Professor Andrew Peterson, 
is the Director of Research in Islamic Archaeology at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Uh, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Good, good afternoon. Yes, nice to be yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for 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 taking time out time out and speaking to us. Um, a lot of people hear the word archaeologist and think that it's just about you know digging about and digging around and maybe you know finding some bones of dinosaurs or whatever uh, fossils. Can you describe a day in the life of an archaeologist? Okay. Well, um, yeah, certainly I can. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is there's different types of archaeologists so you can do anything from working in a laboratory to working in a library to actually digging out in the field mm. uh, and, and some people usually do a combination of these which is what I do so just to give people an idea of the sort of thing that would happen um, I, I work uh, most my field work is mostly in the Middle East mm. and um, it's we we normally start very early in the morning because as you know it's generally it's a bit hotter there and often we're working sort of um we tend to work well in the autumn or something like that but it's still quite hot so we get up early and we get to a, a, a site a place which we know we're, we're, that we're working at we get there quite early often around dawn and then we we, we sort of work until about midday and the 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 work itself is does involve digging um i mean not all archaeologists digging all the time sometimes it can be survey but i think what people are probably interested in is actually when we're digging so there's usually a team of people and um we don't dig randomly we dig in predefined areas uh, so it's marked out. So we know if we do find anything, we know precisely where it is, uh, kind of horizontally, and also how deep it is. And from that, you can look at, that's called the context. So whenever you find something, it's in uh, some soil or or, or a, a particular uh, stone or something like that. And from that, you can work out. Um, what is associated with it, and then you you, you construct these dives, and that really tells you Professor, so you, when when you know when you're discovering, there must be quite interesting very all the careful. different things. That yeah, you... very yeah, and and I suppose the other thing is it's very collaborative, really. Hmm. No one person knows everything, and it's sort of all dependent on on records. But yeah, it's that's sort of kind of a typical day. Absolutely. Um, what would you say is the most interesting um, thing that you've discovered? Ah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, because first of all, most people think when they think of archaeology, they might think of uh, discovering Tutankhamun's tomb or <laughs> golden <laughs> treasures. Now, I, I've, 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 I personally, personally, have never found any gold um, or anything that's sort of intrinsically monetarily valuable. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've, I've found quite a few things which have really affected me personally, and you, you feel very pleased to have found them. For example, um, in Qatar, we were digging uh, in a uh, at a site which is about 300 years old, 
So not not particularly old, but we found within the uh, with Professor, are you there? Well, and we found um, okay. a small piece of uh, bone, and the bone was carved in the shape of an oryx. Um, is with her, she's able to identify type of bone, so she worked out it was um, a camel bone, which had been cut uh, into the shape of uh, Professor Andrew. I think you're cutting up uh, a, a little bit. Uh, maybe maybe the line is not is not that uh, is not that strong. Um, can you hear us now? Are you, are you in a better place? Can you hear us now? No, I think uh, I think uh, we've uh, sort of uh, lost uh, Professor Andrew. Maybe you know we'll try to get him get him back. Um, but still, definitely, you know, when you know, there's different places where where these archaeologists actually go to, mainly sort of the the Middle East. Or trying to find other, you know, other places, and you know, locating those places before, and then finding, uh, you know, obviously, you know, they they have sort of a map, and then going to that particular location, and then uh, digging, or you know, just start digging until they can actually find something. Practically, that's uh, you know, that's what it is. And then if they, when they do find something, that's you know, that's that's the discovery as well. Uh, Professor Andrew, are you are you there with us again? Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm where, yeah, I'm here again. Yeah, thank yeah, you, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, when when you know uh, discovering different things, how do investigating pieces of uh, of the past? How do they sort of affect our present and, and and our future? Okay, well, yeah, in in lots of ways, really. And and the longer I've been doing it, the more I realise sort of kind of how important it is. But on a sort of like very simple level, if if any, if for for all of us, we live in cities, towns, villages, and um, it, for one thing, just on a very simple level, it can help explain how the particular community we lived in, how it developed. So you, got, you get the older bit of the village or town that kind of gradually spreads out. So it can help mm. us to understand sort of where we live and geographically, that's if we live in the area, mm. and uh, it helps us to understand the tradition of houses that we're, we're living in, so things like that. But um, the other thing is, it shows, I, I'd say, it's a good way of finding out uh, how we are the same as our ancestors or people in the past. In many ways, we are the same, mm. and also ways in which we differ. And this helps us understand how human society has, has, has both changed and can remain the same. And, and another thing, I think, which is really interesting, looking at different, different societies in, in the past, in different places of the world it it shows really how all these things like conflicts and stuff that they don't in a sense they never really achieve anything mm. and it, it sort of gives you and i gives you a longer term perspective and you can sort of get a feeling that i think it does it does help us to kind of think about our actions and what we do and and how it's important, I suppose, things like looking after the planet, because we've got examples in the past of soil exhaustion and things like that. But also, as I say, examples of conflict, which never seem to kind of really uh, uh, resolve anything. And so it's, I suppose it's a story of the continuing human presence on the Earth and how we've had to um, adapt 
to, to, to living on this world and adapt to living with each other. So it really helps us to understand how we should uh, live in the future. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, learning from our past is very, you know, very, very much important as well. Um, Professor yeah. Andrew, you've, uh, you've, you have had a, you've had a particular interest uh, in evidence of the of the existence of Islam in 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 British and European archaeology, and most people though would would assume that there wouldn't be any. But what would you say? Yeah, well, that's 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 something which I is is very interesting and something which has sort of grown. I mean, uh, I, I was doing I've been doing Islamic archaeology or the archaeology of the Islamic world for a long time, and I didn't really think of looking in Britain until somebody asked me to investigate some things, and then. Hmm. It's it's what it's a case of once you start looking, you find more and more. Yeah. But um, sort of like in all different periods. I mean, just talking about Britain, for example, we know, um, say, in the Anglo-Saxon period. So that's the period after the Romans left Britain yeah. and uh, before the Normans arrived. We know uh, there's a lot of trade with the Middle East and. Um, particularly uh, via, through the Vikings. So right. you find lots of coins, silver coins in particular, um, coin hoards and all sorts of things um, in different areas in Britain, in Viking context, Viking sites. So the Vikings obviously had some trading contact uh, with the Middle East. And this, this, is, this is on pretty large scale. I mean, it's more so in places like Sweden, and Denmark, but also also in Britain and Ireland, and so, for example, you find um, uh, Abbasid uh, coins in um, in Dublin and elsewhere. Mm. And just to show you, the, the, give it an indication. There's even King Offa, who is King of Mercia, which is roughly the equivalent of the, I suppose, the West Midlands. The the King of Mercia, King Offa. He actually had some gold coins made uh, to resemble um, Islamic dinars because that was mm. recognised as the most important currency at the time. So no. there was kind of a lot of lot of contacts at that time, and but really in all periods. For example, in the uh, 1500s, there was uh, uh, excavating a house in. Um, in in East Anglia, they found um, the evidence of a meal which had been interrupted. I mean, this is a rare thing in archaeology, so you mm. capture a moment in time. And the people were, were eating off these plates, these Turkish plates, uh, which would have been very expensive at the time, made in Isne. So there's obviously there's trade, whichever did you look at, there's trade and contacts with the Islamic world. And I'd say there's, there's a lot more to discovered there mm. I mean yeah I mean that's interesting the way you just said I wouldn't even have uh, imagined that but yeah that's that's that is quite interesting um, yeah. do you do you believe that enough is being done though to to help students uh, and all those people who actually have an interest in this develop a uh, sort of a deeper interest in in archaeology what more can be done though well, I think there's a lot that can be done. I mean, I'm aware, for example, through teaching archaeology, mm. that, for example, not there's not many Muslim students, for example, who study archaeology. Mm. And, and I think that's one thing that could be done. So I think things could be done to kind of encourage Muslims 
for example, more courses like like the types of courses which I teach mm. about Islamic art to show that Islamic civilization is also a civilization that can be looked at through archaeology. Right. And then I'd say for all all students, um, I'd say one of the, for me one of the problems is there's a lot about um, ancient Greek, ancient Greek, ancient Roman civilization, ancient Egyptian civilization, and um, really the Islamic civilization is not really kind of discussed yet. It is it is it is a civilization as well as a religion. It's something which really. Um, was very important to the heritage of many countries throughout the world. Mm. And so I'd say this is something that could be, people should look at more. I mean, the problem is, is the funding, the way the funding works in, say, in Britain, in British universities, a lot of the funding goes to, say, classical archaeology, Roman and Greek archaeology, but there yeah. isn't really the funding in place for looking at these periods mm. Mm. and areas. Um, no, I mean some interesting, some interesting thoughts as well, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, you know, there's there's more awareness about this as well, so that Islamic archaeology is uh, is sort of coming comes into the mainstream uh, as well. But Professor Andrew Peterson, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you so much uh, to talk to us and uh, you know discussing your discoveries and your thoughts as well. Thank you once again, and have a lovely day. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Okay, you thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that was uh, Professor Andrew Peterson, who is the Director of Research in Islamic Archaeology at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Um, very interesting and uh, thankful to speak to him as well. And, you know, I think, like, like he was saying, if Islamic history or archaeology, because it's not just a civilization like he, like he mentioned, it's actually a religion, a living religion. Yeah. In fact, the most, you know, the, the, the most popular religion, which is growing. Okay. Um, at the moment so I mean we talk about Greek history we talk about Egyptian history fine that is interesting as well but they, they, they're in the past now <laughs> Yeah, I mean talking about the present uh, yeah, in the future. Well, unfortunately the wars they still continue and uh, uh, yeah. you know, even right now we are going through uh, you know, war Crisis in the world. Well. Uh, and, and, and the problem is that the historical landmarks, they are even they are targeted intentionally, uh, much to the dismay of archaeology, uh, archaeologists around the world. For example, many sites of interest have been destroyed in Syria, one of the world's oldest settlements. ISIS was one of the terrorist groups. Have uh, They have seemed to take great pride in the destruction of archaeological treasures. Um, as seen um, in videos, um, you know that have been you know distributed, and um, mm. the, there is the, they they have themselves shown it in on in the, on the social media as well, yeah. Um, yeah. in the galleries uh, that that you know they um, they they have actually damaged, they have destroyed priceless artifacts with jackhammers. Yeah. They have destroyed museum galleries, housing um, historically yeah, unique collections, and exploded sites in the territory. They control for sacrificing. In fact, it, this is this is out of ignorance, actually. Yeah. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, that they, it is n nothing to do with Islamic teachings. Islamic teaching is otherwise. Um, um, in May 2015, hundreds of ISIS fighters, they overrun another UNESCO site in Syria, the ancient history of Palmyra, mm. renowned for its Roman-era 
ruins. I uh, mean, it's stupidity. It's ignorance, isn't it? It's ignorance. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. And um, this, uh, you know, such destructions due to collateral damage. I mean, see, uh, the other war zones have all suffered great loss in terms of artifacts. Um, naturally, when we think of war, we think of the immediate effect it uh, has on human life, mm. and rightly so. Certainly, the cost of human life is higher than any other and should always be top priority. However, we often neglect the effect that war has on countries' heritage, its history, mm. its pride. So with the destruction of the country's historical beauty, the world is deprived of understanding itself better. Mm. Without such artifacts, buildings or sites, societies forget their origins, which is only another great tragedy. And also that with that destruction, also the history is being destroyed as well and you 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 don't have an access mm. uh, and you don't leave a chance in future even for people to identify or explore and find out you know what what happened here in the past and uh, obviously it has at certain stage very significant effect on um, how you know the things have changed mm. because of a certain event which has happened and it has a long-term effect on on people mm. so if you study through that and there, there are so many different things which has been mentioned particularly if you look at the um, the stories narrated by the holy quran although it is not a book of uh, stories and it's book not quran, a book yeah. of history yeah. yet you know it gives certain principles to guide hum human kind because uh, human beings uh, that's the purpose of the revelation of the holy quran that it guides the human beings to not to or learn lessons from history mm, to learn from history exactly yeah exactly. so so that is one thing that you know if, that one with the archaeological um, uh, if from that point of view we look at things we it confirms what the holy quran has told us you know, which which we we would have wouldn't have known had the Holy Quran not mentioned, or even the previous books have not mentioned about them. And then we confirm what is right and what is wrong. What's the truth? Uh, you know, even among the books, we can identify that what um, exactly. the Holy Quran exactly. mentioned has been proved to be. Um, because the, the because correct. the prophecies as well, isn't it, which are yeah. mentioned uh, over there? There are different things which are mentioned over there as well, which we are yet to which we are yet to discover as well. So. There's an array of different things, uh, different you know, different findings to be discovered, and you know, time will tell. Maybe we'll discover s something which we didn't even think about discovering. This one, uh, so you know, you never know. So uh, join us after the after the quick break as we are c continuing this topic. Uh, we're going to be speaking to to another professor as well uh, about the you know about uh, archaeology, Islamic archaeology in the Middle East as well. And also, we'll be speaking to an imam later on as well, speaking a little bit more about the Turin Shroud, which we, we you know, which we alluded to in the in the beginning part of the show as well. And of course, um, the uh, pr the prophecy about Pharaoh's body. So yeah. that's about yeah, that's, you know, that's very very, very interesting the that we're going to be speaking the mummification and, uh, and the Pharaoh. So that's something that we're going to be speaking about uh, in the second part of the show as well. Um, so do do join us uh, after the break as we will continue this topic. If you if you want to call us, the number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. But join us after a quick break. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Allah, 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 Allah. 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. Uh, this is the second part of our show. We are uh, discussing today an interesting topic of archaeology and its importance and how does it uh, affect us. Um, earlier, we have spoken um, to a couple of uh, very highly uh, um, uh, sort of professional professors and mm. uh, a very interesting talk uh, about archaeology. And uh, in this part as well, we'll be speaking um, to one of the professors and one of uh, our imams as well. So the Absolutely. the topic, uh, as we discussed earlier, that we'll be talking about the particularly the archaeological find of the mummy of the pharaoh hmm. uh, and, and the pharaoh which is which the one who encountered uh, prophet moses on whom be peace obviously prophet moses is the one who is important uh, in the respect that all the three religions are uh, you know they, they believe in him and as as well as uh, it had a great historical impact or what uh, what uh, happened at that time and one of the pharaohs definitely was the one who was actually following him and uh, uh, and with the discovery of uh, uh, the mummy of pharaoh which obviously his body was preserved mm. uh, and it is the, the it's the holy quran actually which mentioned about that uh, and nobody even thought of that before before uh, the the it was revealed by the by the Holy Quran mm. and the Holy Quran states so this day we will save thee in thy body alone that thou mayest be assigned to those who come after thee and surely many of mankind are heedless of our signs mm. this is from chapter 10 verse 93 the preservation of the body is highlighted and also it is implicitly suggested that his body will be found to serve as an example Absolutely, absolutely. And in his book, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth, the Ford, the fourth head of the worldwide Ahmadi Muslim community, the fourth caliph of the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him, he writes that the Quran mentions the saving of Pharaoh's body with the purpose that the, that the posterity may learn their lesson from it. No human source of history has ever referred to it. And it's, it's interesting that when the Qur'an was revealed, the tombs of uh, the Egyptian kings, uh, they, they buried deep under, you know, deep under layer upon layer of desert sand. Now, little was known of the science of mummification to the people of that age, and certainly not to the Arabs. No books or tradition, religious or otherwise, had ever hinted at the at the rescue of Pharaoh's body, let alone mention its subsequent preservation. Now, this account of the Quran is unique, also in the in the sense that it does not merely reveal some 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 past some past events, which were till then unknown to the rest of the world, but it also prophesied that the future would testify to the truth of the Quranic statement. It was implausible enough to convince that the to conceive that the body of pharaoh having drowned in the in the conditions described by the bible could be retrieved the phenomenon of such a body 
even if retrieved, will present no small problem for the purpose of mummification. Yet this, yet this is what uh, the Quran claims. No man could have dreamt of making such a statement contrary to the available historical evidence at the time of the revelation of the Quran. All that man knew was that the body of Pharaoh had been devoured by the sea, lost forever. Even the Egyptian plunderers of the tombs had no notion whatsoever as to which, if any, uh, of uh, the pharaohs were buried in the valley of the kings. And what what made the what made the prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him of Islam make this unique statement if he were the author of the whole of the Quran? Now this is something to actually think about as well. Now it could serve him it could serve him no purpose anyway. If anything, it could be counterproductive. If challenged, the, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, could not have produced any evidence to support his uh, contentions. The only purpose it would serve was to uh, was to compromise the truth of the Quran. It was many centuries after the revelation of the Holy, of the Quran that the earth began to throw up its secrets, the mummified bodies of all the pharaohs which can claim to be the pharaohs of the time of Moses, peace be upon him, have been retrieved. Now this is what the second caliph of the Ahmadi, uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim, Muslim community has mentioned. And it's very interesting as well that why would the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, be want to say something if if he was if he was the author of the Holy Quran? Definitely, you know, this proves that it was by it was you know revealed to him uh, by God Almighty as well. Um, let's speak to our next guest. Well, we speak a little bit more about this a little bit later on as well. But let's speak to our next guest who is on on, on the line with us, Professor Timothy Insel, who is a professor of African and Islamic archaeology at the University of Exeter. He's also founder and director of the Centre for Islamic Archaeology. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good afternoon and welcome to the show. Good afternoon, thank you very much for having me here. Thank you so much for for being with us uh, this afternoon. Now you founded the the Centre for Islamic Archaeology. Can you please tell us about where your interest in Islamic history and also archaeology stems from? Um, I think the the, the initial impetus was as a child, Hmm. as it often is with these things, and visiting the fantastic museums in London. I'm originally from London. So the British Museum and the Victorian Albert Museum, and just seeing these magnificent artefacts that weren't really that well discussed or described, and getting Hmm. very interested in, in Islamic material culture through that. And then when I was a student, um, doing courses that had absolutely no non-European content in them. And I thought, there's mm. something a bit wrong here, yeah. but that is also an opportunity. So that's why I specialised in Islamic archaeology after that. And it's also given me the opportunity to work in some absolutely fascinating and amazing places and to build really good relationships with universities in different parts of the world as well. So various reasons. Interesting, very interesting. Now, the, the centre exists to teach and research on all aspects of global Islamic archaeology, and that's very, that's very interesting, uh, the, global, the global part. Now, most people would assume uh, that Islamic archaeology is confined to sort of the Middle East and those sort of countries and that sort of region. Mm-hmm. So can you please tell us a little bit more, elaborate on the global aspect of the centres of research? Well, I think the global aspect is the defining element, as you've, as you've identified, of our Centre for Islamic Archaeology. Mm. Hmm. And um, what is odd, is, as also as you say, is people often identify Islam just with the Middle East. But of course, if you think 
in terms of numbers of um, Muslims. Nigeria figures very heavily there in terms mm. of population who are Muslim, mm. as of course does Indonesia as well, and neither of those are in the Middle East. So deliberately, our research and my research has focused on those areas outside of the Middle East. So our specialisms are, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa. I just finished a major five-year project funded by the European Research Council looking at um, the introduction of Islam into Ethiopia, for instance, mm -hmm. which has never been looked at because there the narrative, the official narrative has always been Christianity. Yeah, yeah. So this has allowed us to redress that. Um, we're also, I've got students working, for instance, on Islam in China. Okay, it's a contentious subject, but they're not looking at it in the north. They're looking at it actually in the mainland of China, mm. where, of course, there were Arab and Persian and Indian communities on the coast there trading from right the origins of Islam all the way through. So the student is looking at that. Also looking at trans-Saharan trade, how this connected up sub-Saharan Africa with, for example, Islamic Spain. And another major thing that we're doing that we're looking at is to break down these barriers whereby everyone just thinks that Islam is the Middle East, is looking at ceramics. So just pottery is something that survives archaeologically, but looking at how this can interconnect and show interconnections across vast regions of the Islamic world. So for instance, I've got another PhD student, a doctoral student, mm. he's looking at the African pottery in Bahrain in the Persian Gulf, we're finding lots of it there. Mm. Another student looking at South Asian pottery in Bahrain in the Gulf. And even, mm. I have to also add, that you may think that the Persian or Arabian Gulf, however you like to describe it, would be a well-investigated area. Of course, it's part of the Middle East, however mm. you want to apply that label. But that wasn't the case until our work there 20 years ago. People there had focused on classical archaeology. So even in some areas that you may think that there has been a lot of work done, there hasn't. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're doing this innovative, globally-based research. All of this is, you know, is fascinating and interesting when, you know, when new things uh, are actually discovered as well. Um, nowadays, though, Professor, th there's a greater conversation about artifacts at museums, you know, things which are displayed there, and yes. decolonization. Now, h how do you think that museums can actually go forward from this uh, in both sort of being places for, for yeah. learning for students, but also being respectful to you know, the artifacts and the discoveries which are being displayed over there and its origins. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very important um, arena for debate in museums at the moment, and it's also yeah. a very difficult question to answer. Yeah. Um, what I would do is I would unpack that a little bit and say, if we kept it focused on Islamic artefacts, that the decolonization debate is perhaps slightly less significant than for, um, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, where there was wholesale looting of artefacts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, museums tended to have purchased a lot of their artefacts, okay, but maybe by dubious means. Yeah. But what I would say is then that doesn't mean it's exempt from debates because, of course, in the Islamic context, what you have is the notion of Orientalism. Hmm. So that's, the you know, putting Islam as the other, as the exotic, you know, the East, all these sorts of things that Edward Said rightly um, showed to be nonsensical. So there is that major debate in relation to it. Um, if we think about, if we return to the notion of decolonization, though, I think that the overall key to it, and that the simple thing is to include communities from the areas where the artifacts are taken from mm. and also mm. institutions from those areas so say for example that a lot of material was taken from india which it was and it's in storage in for example the victorian albert museum then you have to engage with the archaeological survey of india or its equivalent in pakistan for instance or bangladesh mm. 
Mm. and with communities here in order to talk about what can be done should all the material go back or can somehow a narrative or a way forward be negotiated whereby there is a reciprocal arrangement perhaps where exhibitions are arranged in both areas Mm. but the problem is that museums are beginning to engage with that but as we're well aware it it sort of hits the political buffers further up Mm. where they begin to say there are cultural wars and all these sorts of things that are being used for political purposes that are outside the realm of academia but of course we're influenced by it yeah. And until there's major change there, museums can say until they're blue in the face that this is what needs to be done. But if the purse strings are withheld by those further up, that makes it more difficult. Yeah. So it's a very complicated issue, but an important one. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely. Um, our show today, our show today was entirely about archaeology, especially you know um, Islamic archaeology, and maybe Good. we've sort of inspired a lot of people to, to to sort of go into this as well, maybe become even students of archaeology. And for for those of us who 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 want to sort of expand our knowledge about Islamic archaeology or even just archaeology in general. What advice would you give them on where to start or how to prepare or what sort of um, yeah. colleges to go to or that sort of stuff? Very good question. Well, the first thing I would say is visit museums. Hmm. Um, for the reasons that, we, you know, that this was an imperial nation, the museums are stuffed full of relevant artefacts, rightly or wrongly acquired. But w- if we move beyond that, if you visit the museums, you can see fantastic collections. So if you're in London, definitely yeah. the British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum. If you're in Manchester, you've got a very good museum. If you're in Liverpool, you've got a very good museum. Birmingham, Edinburgh, Cardiff, Exeter. So the list goes on. So I would say that's the first thing. If you're, if you're interested in general archaeology, of course, there are no Islamic sites here as such in the UK. Mm. But the English heritage has a series of all sorts of sites there that will give you an insight into what archaeology is. Mm-hmm. You know, the practical side of things. You can go there and see the sorts of things that are excavated, the types of material that survives. For Islam, it's more difficult. You need mm. to have money. You need to travel. But you don't need to actually travel that far. Right. If you think about it... Spain and Portugal are quite nearby, and they, for 600 years, 700 years, were part of the Dar al-Islam. Mm. So this is, or large parts of them were. So this is an area where people, many people go on holiday there, but many of them don't, I'm not saying necessarily your readers, I'm sure that your listeners w- mm. won't do this, but many people just don't go beyond their resorts or anything like that. Right. But if you do, you've got the most fantastic Islamic archaeology that you, you, that you can see. And we're starting a new project here in my centre called Afro-Andalus, which mm-hmm. is looking at the sub-Saharan African element in Islamic Spain, for example. The fourth element that I would say is reading. Okay, that involves money, but it doesn't. So if, you're, if you want to start, and you want to start looking at anything academic, and I don't mean necessarily boring academic, but general text, mm-hmm. for free, academia.edu is the site to look at that for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then finally, digging. If you can get some excavation experience, that's excellent. But the problem there is, but outside of the UK, so for example, I, I'm uh, the honorary archaeological advisor to the Crown Prince of Bahrain. So we do work there every year, but I have to take professional archaeologists. So I can't take people that are just interested in it. But your local groups, wherever you are, always need volunteers. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then qualification rise, do one of the night classes or just come straight in with your, because it's very hard to do an A level in archaeology. Just speak to the admissions tutor in the archaeology department you're interested in. They like having students. Mm. They'll have a conversation with you. And that's the way to get into it. And there are several departments, if, you are, if, if the listener is particularly interested in Islamic archaeology, that are now beginning to teach this in London, here in Exeter, um, in Manchester, for example, and other places. So look around, see what suits you. 
Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Uh, and thank you for for all of that as well. Some good advice, and definitely, you know, our listeners must have uh, gotten something that they can take away from this uh, from this as well. Um, lastly, Professor Timothy, that you know mm. that that sort of first hand experience. Can you just describe that, uh, for, you know, for our listeners as well, just to give them a little bit of a pump as well. That when you hold a, a new discovery, a new discovery yeah. for the first time, that artifact. How is that feeling? Just describe that for us, please. Well, I, I mean, I think that when I first was thinking about this, it's it's um, you would think that it's something that would be differ, different for each person. But no, yeah. in the 30 plus years that I've been working as an archaeologist, everyone's experience that I've seen is found some wonderful object or a new site or whatever hmm. is a sense of wonderment initially, that this is amazing. And then people begin to think that actually what this provides is a direct link to the past. So, for example, say we excavated a palace in Gao in Mali that was part of the uh, Ma- empire of Mali. So this is a medieval Islamic empire in Africa. Hmm. We were the first people to walk on that floor for 700 years. It was amazing. Wow. And then when we lifted the floor, beneath that we found a cache of a hoard of 50 hippopotamus tusks that they were exporting as ivory to um, Spain. So hmm. this is absolutely amazing. The, the, the information that you can gain. Okay, most of it just routine and boring. Um, but it's that sense of wonderment, but also the contributions to knowledge. So just one other example would be um, the other high point of my career was when we were excavating um, a palace site in Bahrain. We mm. found one of the earliest pieces of evidence of Islam there, right. which was assured that someone had written on in ink with part of the Bismillah on it, well, which well. is absolutely fantastic. So this mm. was earlier than the mosques or anything that we found there. So this was one, you know, one of the early Muslims there inscribing their new religious faith on this shirt. And this was like a concrete indicator of Islam. And it was wonderful to find. Absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure that it must have been. Well, good luck in your in your research in the, in the future as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Timothy. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you uh, on the show today. Thank you once again. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Bye bye. That was Professor Timothy, um, who's a professor of, uh, of African and Islamic archaeology at the University of Exeter and uh, also the founder and director of the Centre for Islamic Archaeology. Some good tips that he gave as well for those people that are interesting, mm-hmm. interested in this one. And it is quite an interesting uh, thing as well. Um, imagine, you know, discovering these different um, tombs, these mosques, Absolutely, even the yeah, catacombs, fantastic. you know, the yeah. catacombs you know, in, 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 in Italy. That must have been, you know, when we discovered that, very, very interesting uh, for that one was all the Asabi the people of the cave, and how they used to yeah, live it is, in it there. Is interesting, there. yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I visited uh, very recently uh, Egypt and uh, mm. saw these mummies. They have, like, you know, Ramesses too. And, Ramesses too. Uh, yeah. But there are so many, so many different, they have, they are actually building another um, section um, uh, on one floor, which is, uh, mummies, uh, which are you know related to Pharaoh and the, mm. the whole family of the Pharaoh, and they mm. they've got their bodies. And then it's it's very uh, interesting to see the Valley of Kings. Mm. You see, because once uh, this uh, um, uh, the pyramids, the pyramids were you know when people found that this, it, there is. Uh, the, the burial of lots of treasures yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, along yeah. with that <laughs> they started and 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 this was something which was actually very inviting to everybody that come and come and uh, and get it <laughs> get, get a piece so, of treasure so, so i think later on somebody got an idea that because people can be attracted so mm. they they started burying people with you know anonymous sites mm. and they were underground and that's where the valley of kings is because there is, is like there are 60 
Tom 60 kings they have been mm. buried there and uh, and they are so so intelligently built that they they were they are very well preserved and they're still there and you can go there and you can uh, I mean, have even, a look even at if them. you look at the pyramids the way that they are constructed yeah it's it's amazing yeah, yeah, how yeah, big yeah. they are yeah, each no, one no. block how big that is and then how many thousands of uh, you know Blocks and then the whole of the uh, mummification process, you know, yeah. they, they, they have preserved that as well. Mm. How did they do it? How mm. mummification? But here it is that the Holy Quran is mentioning about that, that this is how um, the body of the person, uh, whether it was a Ramesses II or it was another pharaoh. Mm. Um, uh, so one, one of the mummies which was recovered from the valley of the king is that mm. of the pharaoh who confronted Moses. Um, the only conclusion is that, that one is left to draw is that against the verdict of the entire world history mm. is the verdict of the Quranic revelation alone which is proved correct. So Absolutely. this day we will, that that's the wording of the Holy Quran. So this day we will save thee in the body, in thy body alone. Mm. So this is the word of the Quran, uh, which has now become the verdict of the world history. Absolutely. So uh, one possible meaning of this address by God to Pharaoh is that the time for saving his life was over. Hence, it would be only his dead body which would be saved. Mm. And the other possible meaning would be that the time for the acceptance of his faith had expired. Hence, his soul would not be redeemed. In this case, only his body would be saved to live on like that of a zombie without a soul. Mm. So, to our understanding, it is the latter meaning which is intended by the Quran. To support our inference further, we cite the Quranic style in which this episode is narrated. A particular interest is the expression, we will save thee in thy body alone. Mm. So, so, yeah, I mean, now, now Pharaoh was uh, evidently concerned for his survival uh, here on earth, and rather than the retrieval of uh, his corpse, if neither his spiritual nor his physical life was to be saved, then what then, you know, what would this promise even mean? Evidently, Pharaoh was not praying for the rescue of his dead body. Now, if this prayer was accepted even partially, as uh, as is evidence from the Quran, then to cause him to die both physically and spiritually seems out of the question. It is tantamount to a total denial of what he begged for. His profession of faith in the God of Israel must have been made for fear of his life. Hence, it was justifiably, um, justifiably rejected as meaningless. All this is promised. Uh, all that is promised is that only his body would be redeemed, but not his soul. But most Muslim scholars insist that uh, his plea was totally rejected, and the promise of saving the body referred only to the recovery of his corpse from the sea. So that's you know very interesting. Yeah, and from archaeological point of view, you know another another very important uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, historical event which has happened and which has actually made a difference um, to all the three religions is regarding the uh, regarding Prophet Jesus of Nazareth on whom be peace. That um, about uh, you know his his death uh, uh, on the cross, hmm. uh, which was the claim of the Jews and uh, interestingly the Holy Quran says that he did not die on the cross but he survived the cross and uh, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as I mentioned earlier has provided conclusive evidence that Jesus uh, on whom be peace traveled to India where he lived to old age and then he passed away peacefully 
and the enigma surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus and his post-crucifixion life among the lost tribes of Israel was first entangled, untangled through divine guidance by the holy founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, in his book, uh, Jesus in India, which was written in 1899. Hmm. So the evidence on the subject which has been put together from older books has only confirmed the thesis which he had presented some, um, it's more than 1899, so it's, it's more than 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the life and travels of uh, Prophet Jesus, on whom be peace, have been traced since his escape on the cross to this travel and abode in the mountains of Afghanistan and the Valley of Kashmir in a successful search of the lost tribes of Israel and in fulfillment of his proclaimed divine mission. Another decisive piece of evidence in support of this is provided by the discovery of his tomb in Mohalla Khanyar in Hmm. Srinagar, that is in Kashmir, um, uh, and it is called Rosabel, and is described as a tomb of Joseph, um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the prophet, the, the, this uh, Joseph has been called as a prophet and uh, is also called the Prince of Prophet. Hmm. And and uh, and regarding this, I have my personal experience. You visited, that I, yeah, that I visited well, that place, and actually, I I uh, went to this place, which is called Rosabel. Hmm. And uh, nearby there was like a mosque, and I was there at Fajr time. Hmm. And, uh, and the people came coming out from the from that mosque in the and the first uh, you know the pre-dawn hmm. prayers, uh, and and one of the pe- one of the person who came out, uh, and uh, so I I asked him that what is the significance of you know where you have said your uh, prayers, what because there was a tomb there as well, hmm. so I asked him you know, what's the significance. He said that, no this is this is not significant. This is just a. Um, uh, a, a mosque here, mm. but actually the significant thing is that tomb. He pointed at this mm. this tomb of Joseph, and I said, um, "Whose tomb is that?" And he said, "This this belongs to." Uh, he said Moses, and then he said, I realized his mistake. I said, "No, not Moses. It's Prophet Jesus. Mm. It is his tomb, mm. and uh, they they have uh, done studies on it, and and uh, it is it is definitely established that this is a grave of a prophet." And he was called a, a, a prince, hmm. prophet, you know, Shahzada Nabi. Shahzada Nabi is a prophet who was a prince. Hmm. And he said he came from outside. Uh, and obviously that that fits that into he, the yeah. story. So, he traveled, migrated. Yeah. Him. And the interesting thing is that in, in this uh, enclosure of the tomb, and it has been also mentioned by the holy founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, that um, within this enclosure there are two, two graves. Hmm. So one grave is that of uh, Prophet uh, Jesus, which is, uh, and on it it is very clearly written, written the grave of Joseph. Hmm. And uh, the, there is another grave which is called, which belongs to a Muslim saint hmm. whose name is Nasiruddin Shah, hmm. and, and his name is also Yad Nasiruddin is also written there. But the thing is that the direction of the graves is different. Both hmm. graves are in different directions. Direction. One is facing the Kaaba, the other is facing the the uh, you know. The the first Qibla Qibla Abel, the um, uh, Palestine. Mm. So 
Battlemaktas. Ja, yeah, Jerusalem, ja yeah, basically. So, so, so that's the evidence. So, and obviously with the excavation, you know, you these things are related to that. And uh, you know, th- this th- this description of the tomb uh, has been mentioned by a, a a scholar. His name is Sir Francis Young Husband, and uh, he has written a book called British Resident in Kashmir. And he, he, he has written in that book that there resided in Kashmir some 1900 years ago a saint of the name of Josasaf who preached in parables and used many of the same parables as Christ uses, mm. as, for instance, the parable of the sower. His tomb is in Srinagar, and the theory is that, that Josasaf and Jesus are one and the same person. When the people are in appearance of such a decided Jewish caste, is it curious that such a theory should exist? Hmm. And furthermore, as in relation to our topic today, the Shroud of Turin, um, since that, that has been founded, it has very clearly pointed towards the existence of Jesus. That, you know, um, many, many people, they, they say that it could be fake or simply just not Jesus. Yeah. But uh, Professor Max Fry, is, who is a distinguished criminologist and director of scientific laboratory of Zurich police has tested the Turin Shroud for the pollen adhering to it. And after years of meticulous analysis using the most advanced techniques has been able to build up detailed picture of the Shroud's history and origins. Mm. And in particular, he discovered on the Shroud tiny grains of fossilized pollen that after detailed tests turned out to be from plants existing only in Palestine 20 centuries ago. So, so obviously that confirms that the, this is a genuine um, show. And another another uh, very important uh, evidence it has shown mm. is that, uh, you know, that on this shroud, uh, in, 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 uh, which, which obviously it, it was in, kept in Turin, uh, they, they found that there are 28 blood stains on the shroud which prove that obviously when he was held in this shroud, uh, he was still alive because he was bleeding. He was bleeding. A dead person does not bleed. Uh, And uh, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, we are holding uh, holding our annual conference soon on the 5th, 5th, 6th, and 7th. And at that uh, conference, which is in Hadith al-Mahdi near Orton, And uh, there is a, 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 a an, an exhibition, exhibition where which, yeah. the, the this sh- uh, shroud of Turin is held, and a professor who is uh, who has done research himself, um, they are there, and, and everybody is you know welcome to come and see that. Hmm. I mean, let's speak to our next guest. We will speak a little bit more about this uh, as well. Imam Rabi Mirza, who's a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And a very good friend uh, to us uh, on the Drive Time Show on the Voice of Islam. So, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Wa alaikum and uh, peace be upon you and uh, all of our listeners today. Zakallah. Thank you so much for joining us uh, again. Um, every year, as we you know, we, we just uh, touched upon as well, that every year the Ahmadiyya Muslim community holds the annual convention, the the Jalsa Salana. And uh, in that, there's different exhibitions which are held as well. And one of them, which the Review of Religions um, uh, exhibition, they, they, they have the, the Shroud of Turin. How does this shroud and any other archaeological evidence prove the existence of, uh, of Jesus? Uh, sort of, you know, uh, that, he, that he did not die on the cross. Well, um, 
first and foremost, of course, this is uh, quite a, a long and uh, lengthy discussion to be held regarding the shroud. Yeah. Um, but the first thing I would actually say in this regards is the actual photography um, or the photograph of the shroud that was taken, which was in May 1898. Um, and this was by the Italian photographer, Secondo Pia. Now, at that time, of course, it was inconceivable to create um, a fake image. So the image that was taken um, by the photographer um, and uh, various other things in regards to this, and another photograph was taken in 1931. So all these show that, first and foremost, the shroud is not a fake. The image that's being portrayed or displayed <clears throat> through its uh, the negative image of it, it's not a fake. So this shows the legitimacy of the shroud. Hmm. Now, regarding how it can actually prove the existence um, of Jesus, again, as I mentioned, that uh, this is also a lengthy discussion, um, and there's many articles, if our listeners would like to read about this on uh, our Review of Religions website. Now, <clears throat> one thing which is very interesting to note, um, again, is the anatomy uh, of blood found on the shroud. Again, the picture or the image that's being portrayed by the Bible, uh, where Jesus um, was uh, a, a, a crown of thorns was placed upon his head, and the various parts, for example, he was stabbed um, <clears throat> with a spear towards his side. The anatomy of the blood on the shroud itself shows that there was a human being within this, and the way that the anatomy of the blood is actually shown on the shroud, it is parallel, or we could say that it is the exact image that um, has been portrayed by the Bible. Another thing uh, which is very interesting to note, mm. is the way that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has described Jesus in the Ahadith when we read his sayings. This, it is a spitting image of the way that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has described Jesus. And we know that the Holy Prophet has described two messiahs. He's described Jesus, son of Mary, and he's also described the messiah that was going to be for the muslims and each have a different description so the description regarding the mosaic messiah or the judaic messiah that's the one that that we can see on the shroud um, another thing which is very interesting to note about the shroud itself is that if it did not hold any sort of um, holiness or sacredness to it and of course, if you read the history of how it was passed down through various aristocrats, then it was shown in various churches every Sunday. It was held high and shown. And thereafter, um, there was a fire and part of it was burned. And in actuality, the part of it that was burned, then there was some, uh, you know, news. It was cotton or um, I believe it was wool that was interwoven. Um, within it at that very corner. Um, so when they were ca 
carbon dating the shroud, um, and this was actually in 2005, uh, Raymond uh, Rogers, who was an expert in thermodynamics and his team, when they were actually doing the carbon dating of the shroud, they did it on that part that was newly interwoven, which was around, they say, 16th century um, cotton. So when they found out that that corner which they had done the carbon dating on was interwoven, the rest of the shroud was dated around the um, first century. So that's why this also shows that it was from around the time of Jesus as well. There's, there's so many other elements that prove um, that uh, this, in fact, was the shroud uh, that Jesus was wrapped in inside. And, of mm-hmm. course, the Bible also mentions this point as well. Um, myself, I've also, uh, the convention that we hold, yeah. um, you know, in uh, Alton, um, you know, initially, I think it was around uh, 2015, I also had the opportunity to speak to one of the experts, and I was actually discussing um, this point about where was that interwoven part. So the lady, she showed me that it was here, and also she showed me the anatomy of the blood and the back part and the front part. So these things, from our point of view, we say um, that in actuality, this is the shroud that Jesus was, um, you know, uh, as such, he was, uh, we can say, um, recovering in after he had been taken down from the cloth, mm. uh, the cross, and uh, it actually proves that uh, Jesus um, survived the crucifixion. Uh, he did not die. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, th- this is just this is just one of the things, isn't it? Um, which uh, you know, w- which we can actually prove. The that Jesus, uh, the Jesus, son of Mary, peace be upon both of them, that he survived after being put on the cross, as though he did not die on the cross, uh, but then he migrated towards, uh, uh, you know, towards the Kashmir via Afghanistan, current Afghanistan. Now, another interesting moment of Islamic history is the narration regarding the preservation of Pharaoh's body. Now, we know about the mummification process is. This Quranic narration any any less miraculous? No, of course not. Mm. Uh, for a person who was illiterate to speak about the preservation of Pharaoh's body fourteen hundred years before uh, you know the world discovered uh, the body of Ramesses, mm. it's nothing short of a miracle. So, on the one hand, where this proves the truth of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the truthfulness of the Holy Quran. Um, you know, on the other hand, it also shows that this was going to be discovered and has been discovered. So again, with the preservation of um, Pharaoh's body, as well, uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, initially it was believed that when Pharaoh... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When Pharaoh was chasing Moses and his followers, mm. uh, and uh, the ebb tide came in, and he drowned. So this was the uh, well, one theory we can say, or this was one of the main theories back in the the day. 
However, as new research has come to light, and this is what the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community was inclined towards as well due to the investigation that was done on the body of, of Ramesses, that Pharaoh or Ramesses, he did not drown, rather he survived, um, and he survived for quite a quite an old old age. However, uh, he was bedridden. Uh, he spent the rest of his days, uh, we can say, in utmost grief and pain. And the research that was done was there was some illness. I'm forgetting. Um, the name of it, or some ailment that he had within uh, his gums. So there was an ulcer that he developed um, within his gums, and it seems that due to that, uh, his death took place. So, in we can say with utmost in utmost pain, um, the death of Ramesses uh, took place. So the fact of the matter is that, of course, this is there's different uh, viewpoints that uh, he did drown. There's this viewpoint, of course, that he did not drown, as uh, new re- research is coming to light. However, the fact of the matter is that the body of Ramesses has been found, and this itself is a manifestation of the truthfulness of the Holy Quran, that 1,400 years ago, this claim was being made that Pharaoh's body was preserved. So now that it has been discovered, this shows the truthfulness of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings upon him and the Holy Quran. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Islam also teaches not to idolize uh, people. I mean, this can include such things as as, uh, as worshiping statues and various things which are related to that one. Um, you know, that will be that will be associating partners with God. But how does Islam encourage preserving history? Uh, in this case, then, I think fundamentally, whatever good things there are, they should be preserved. Mm. And from the Holy Quran, we know that how God Almighty has spoken about the prophets of the past. Mm. But obviously, the to the extent um, with which the Bible speaks about the prophet, it goes into the nitty gritties. The Holy Quran has spoken uh, has spoken and related of the most important parts of their lives, of their stories, of their venture into the world and their spirituality. Hmm. So there's, of course, no harm in preserving history, as the Holy Quran has also taught us. And mm, the fact of the matter is that the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, are also a window for us to gaze into the lives of the early Muslims, the character of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and how we should, to that extent, um, mold our lives. So the best way Hmm. to preserve history is in this regard. Of course, um, history also should be preserved from this aspect as well, that if anything wrong has happened in the past, then we should not um, repeat those um, mistakes as well. So, Mm. for example, uh, we see that uh, in the past, various different, um, you know, wars have been fought, 
I mean, I, we won't say right back into the past, but even uh, towards uh, this century, we've seen two wars have been fought, um, atom bombs have been uh, dropped as well. So there is a necessity to preserve that history as well to ensure that we don't go down that line. But rather, if there is a history that shows us, um, you know, skies uh, of, of, of blue hues and, and the sun radiating upon us, um, and, you know, there's, there's happiness and goodness everywhere, of course, that's the ideal lifestyle that we want to try to emulate as well. So that's why there is always a necessity to preserve the history to the extent that we can learn from it, we can adapt if anything bad has happened, and whatever good things have happened in the past, we can also adopt those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that is what I was going to ask you as well, um, that, you know, by looking at all of these past uh, monuments and all of these artifacts that we discover, I mean, we should learn these moral values and uh, learn from the history, isn't it? So that our our present and our future can be a, a better place as well, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Um, Imam Rabin Mirza, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and speaking to speaking to us. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Jazakumullah once again and uh, have, a, have a lovely day. As-salamu alaykum. Thank you so much. So that was Imam Rabin Mirza speaking to us a little bit more about uh, not just Turin Shah but also the mummification, the preservation of Pharaoh's body as well. Which all of these things are, are very much important, as as we are mentioning that they shape and form uh, the 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 concepts, the the beliefs, the tenets, um, the core beliefs of uh, of different religions, and uh, with all of these things coming into play, it uh, tells us that the Quranic prophecies are very much uh, very much true, and uh, Allah the Almighty has sent them. Um, you know, for our betterment as well, so that we can understand and you know take take heed from these things. So history is a record of what has and has not gone well in the past, and therefore we should study it in order to know how to improve the human race. Hmm. Spanish novelist and philosopher famously said, "Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it." Therefore, we should value it as a gift to our generation. History also has a very humbling aspect to it. Have you ever been sightseeing to a very historical monument and been overwhelmed by the fact that there was once a completely other society and era that saw the same view that you see? Uh, As humility is a very important trait to have, we can certainly benefit from history to teach us this. We must remember that it was Allah the Almighty who gave the civilizations of the past the power and wealth to be able to make such lasting remarks on, on the on the world and indeed when we look at fallen and defeated civilizations that it was Allah the Almighty who took that power and wealth away from them so one uh, can learn lessons from history that's a very important aspect uh, another thing which I think we, we should mention about that is in Saudi Arabia recently there has been a yeah. change and there yes. has been an allocation nearly over a billion dollars to preserve its heritage um, there's something new which is uh, happening, a, a good change for the sake of uh, preservation of the very important, you know, holy sites um, in, in in Saudi Arabia. And uh, uh, because, uh, you know, in the past, uh, and uh, very sadly, hmm. uh, there has been uh, events where 
Uh, lots of very historical places have been destroyed. Yeah. And this is, again, the same tendency as we mentioned in right in the very beginning that you know, when one regime changes to another one, they try to um, sort of... Uh, Implement their own... Yeah, sort of yeah, just... Uh, and, and damaging the old one, they destroy, try to destroy the old one. So so the, the Ottomans, the Abbasides, uh, they, uh, you know, when they were there, they have tried to keep their uh, historical sites and destroyed the others one, which has not done something good. Mm. And recently, uh, as you know, that uh, Hanakaba is being... Uh, well, it's all the time they are uh, uh, sort of they're renovating doing, yeah, it, making new making changes it because it needs extension all the time. And during this process, um, I, I think they have worked hard to preserve some of the things which in the past they did not care and they, they just destroyed it. Hmm. But now, uh, particularly, the, you know, the columns, they are very historical columns inside the Kaaba. Hmm. Uh, and that is something which is, and what they have done is because they had to raise the ground so they have made new pillars under those pillars and and actually lifted the whole mm. um the whole the whole of the pillars which were which are very attractive and mm. historical and so so they have uh, preserved that and uh, as uh, i i mentioned before as well that we saw that many of the sites which were um, you know int- uh, interesting historical sites are being preserved now and people are welcome to visit them as well so that's a that's a very good change, and I, I hope that that uh, that goes on, and and uh, and that would help that we we are able to preserve our history. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, archaeology is uh, the field of study that reminds us that our civilization is not the first, nor will it be the last to walk this planet. As we uncover the footsteps of previous civilizations, we should look forward and towards them, and use these findings as a manner to increase our own knowledge as Islam encourages us to do so. Uh, furthermore, as His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has explained in his in his book that we can see the truth of the Holy Quran and the word of God Almighty through such archaeological finds and understand the wisdom of this grand divine book as well. Um, th- that was our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and of course all, all of our guests who came and took time out and spoke to us as well. Very interesting speak- speaking to all of our guests today. Uh, today's show was produced by Barira Ghaffar and Ifat Mirza. Thank you to to, to them as well. Um, and of course, uh, in the technical side, Akib Ahmed for, for being there and of course Dr. Tariq Wajasab as well for always being here as well. Uh, great uh, presenting with you uh, as well. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.